politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minimans standing at the precipice to fight another revolution anew here at the CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. Back in the house late in the week. It's already Friday. It's been a, another one of these short weeks for us. I do apologize for that, but I am back in body, spirit, and mind. It is September 17th. And you guys well know what that means or should mean to this country. If it meant something the last number of decades, we wouldn't be where we are today. And that is Constitution Day. Today is the day 234 years ago that our Constitution was signed, the product of prayerful deliberations. Benjamin Franklin saw on that day a sunrise, but now we have a sunset. The sun has already set. There's nothing to celebrate. We don't have a Constitution. The Constitution is whatever the elite cabal want to do at any given moment. What is a fundamental right enshrined in our Constitution is now a fundamental right of government to infringe upon. What's antithetical to a right is in there. When you juxtapose what is happening with us being flooded by refugees, plus the border is insane worse than ever. But then at the same time, Americans are treated like dogs. Americans are being forced to get clot shots that already so much don't work that the majority of people seeking monoclonal antibodies are now vaccinated. Oh, and by the way, the government is now rationing them. Guess what? Because they work. They work. Anything that works, they block. Then again, we wouldn't need such expensive treatments like the monoclonals because we have much cheaper options, but they're blocking those as well and have been. So we have a lot to catch up with from yesterday being off. It was, again, uh, the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. I was praying all day. So now we're back to strategizing and see if it, seeing if God will bless our prayers. Um, but, you know, it is it is truly with a lot of sorrow that I come before you on this Constitution Day. Now, one thing we still do have, really the only thing, is the, the right to carry a gun in most states, at least not in all states. But if you're doing that, you need to back our sponsor, not just for my sake, but for your sake. Uh, you can't carry a gun without a secure and safe holster. We the People Holsters, an American-made holster company, has you covered starting at just 40 bucks a holster, custom molded to fit your firearm exactly. They have thousands of options, including uh, just an amazing selection of printed holsters. Really cool. I have a Gadsden flag one. Uh, you go to wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. You could check out their selection of both holsters. And important, this is very important, EDC tactical gun belts, every holster and gun belt come with a lifetime guarantee. Again, wethepeopleholsters.com slash CR. So, folks, oh, and by the way, offer code CR. Make sure you put an offer code CR because it could get it down another 10 bucks and really the cheapest option out there. Um, so, you know, what we have to understand is celebrating the Constitution is like, oh, thank God we have a Constitution. No, we don't have one anymore. If we're going to be conservative in the sense that we're going to conserve, all we're going to conserve is the status quo, which is not the Constitution. If you want the Constitution back or some form of it, which we really need to write anew at this point, you got to fight for it. 
You got to take drastic steps. I did a column, 12 ideas that red state legislatures should be passing, yet not a single one has so far convened a special session. It's unbelievable. A week, a week into this, this mandate. And a year and a half into blocking treatments, creating the virus, enhancing the virus. I mean, I'm not going to be able to catch up on all this week's news of Israel and the vaccine leakiness and you know stuff we were talking about before, how it's getting worse and worse and worse. But again, the point is, we don't have a constitution. And as depressing as that sounds, it's comforting as well. You need to fight back and say no. I'm sick of people celebrating the constitution and then when the government violates it, oh, okay, well... You know, there's not much we can do about that. That's utter nonsense. There's a lot we can do. There's a lot we must do. Now, we're going to have a special guest on today, and we're going to see if he's up to the task. Dr. Scott Jensen, running for governor in Minnesota. Governors are the most important position at this juncture in our country. So we're going to see what he has to offer. So he'll be on in a few minutes. But there's a lot of interesting news out. You look at, where is this? There's a pre-printed study from University of Wisconsin at Madison examining infectious SARS-CoV-2 among vaccinated people. They compared 699 swab specimens collected in July. Okay, so this is July when, when this ADE started to break out from residents of 36 counties. We observed low CT values. So these are the cycle thresholds, less than 25 in 212 of 310 fully vaccinated. So 68% had a high enough viral load that it was detected with less than 25 cycles of amplification. Okay? It was 68% among the vaccinated and 63% among the unvaccinated. Okay? They had a subset of low CT samples revealed infectious SARS-CoV-2 in 15 of the 17 specimens from unvaccinated and 37 of 39 from vaccinated, which is an even higher percentage. Okay? Now, the numbers are not remarkable in the sense that the vaccinated had like three three times as many of them had higher viral loads. It's relatively smaller number, but it was more. Okay? A larger percentage of vaccinated people had a higher viral load. So right off the bat, if the narrative of the government were true, you would expect to see the opposite. Okay? So we have a vaccine that not only are all the vaccinated getting it, but we're starting to see them get higher viral loads. This is not some right-wing publication. This is University of Wisconsin at Madison. Because the famous, the reason why, I put it this way, the reason why Wisconsin is not a red state, it's more of a swing state, is because of Madison. And a big reason why Madison is so liberal is because of this university. And this is what they're coming out with. I, you know, I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I don't think I've ever been as right as I've been over, over the last two months. 
predicting exactly the way this would work, the timeline with the vaccine and the, and, and the higher infection rate, the enhanced disease. And meanwhile, what are we seeing? As I predicted, once people would get onto the monoclonals, it's a remarkable story. The monoclonals were there for months, but it was a big secret. No one knew about it. If you didn't like obsess about COVID, and when I say obsess about it, I mean in an academic way, not like you know wearing a mask or something, because then you're stupid and you wouldn't know about it. But if you really study COVID, so you knew about the monoclonals. Most people did not know about it. Okay, the president of the United States, ready, what was this, last October? Okay, it's almost a year ago. He was treated with them. He was treated with with uh, Regeneron. So you think everyone in America should get access to what we decide to treat the president of the United States with. But no. No. No one knew about it. Now that the Florida governor has really made it very popular, and then you know other states are talking about it, Biden cut their allotment by 50%. They're saying they're having shortages. But here's the problem. One of two things is true. Either he's lying and he's just punitively punishing southern states and letting people die. Or if it really is a shortage, that demonstrates what we're saying, that this is worse than ever, that the vaccine's not working and it's an indictment of the vaccine, much less the mandate of it. And an indictment of... Why did we spend money on the thing that's not protecting people rather than spending money on the thing that people are going to need anyway, even after they get the vaccine? Florida governor reported yesterday that in Broward County, more than half the people coming in for monoclonals were vaccinated, and that number skewed even higher among seniors. Now, again, everyone's going, oh, among seniors, it's like 90% are vaccinated. So, so I mean, I don't know. I don't have the numbers in front of me if it's 70 or 80 or whatever it is. Also, it's still lower, but that means it's not working. And again, it's 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 gradually wearing off. So, so probably within the month, we're going to reach parity with Israel. Or we're going to reach Israel's level, which is that the percentage of people vaccinated getting sick is at parity with the percentage of people vaccinated in the given age category. That's what we're seeing in Israel. This started out as, oh, no one who was getting sick who was vaccinated. Well, now, you really have to assume it's not going to work for you, especially if you got Pfizer. But you know what? Even Moderna. Remember we were saying we don't have a good read on Moderna. Fox News reports here. Moderna has released a set of data to suggest the vaccine is effective in preventing serious health issues, yada, yada, but admitting that efficacy decreases over time. So a study shows lower risk of breakthrough infections of participants vaccinated more recently than participants vaccinated last year. I guess those were like the people in the trials or something. You're twice more likely to get COVID if you got jabbed in that first cohort. Now, they're doing this to push the booster. But it is simply indefensible given the side effects that we would choose something like that. Why aren't we choosing things that don't have side effects? Well, folks, the same reason they're opposing everything. I called this. Just admit that I called this. Remember we said, look, okay, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. Um, 
you know, all all this stuff, uh, androgen blockers. Okay, that sounds too too scary. No, we can't do that. But simple betadine nasal irrigation. Okay, this is an old technique. Newsweek is going after it. Some anti-vaxxers are gargling the common antiseptic betadine in an attempt to treat the pre- prevent the coronavirus. So everything, they're the ones pairing it against the vaccine. What does that have to do with anything? Don't we all want to prophylax in, in as many ways as possible? Plus, everyone who got the vaccine is getting sick. But it, they're making it, they're the ones who are admitting up front that they're attacking it because they view it as an assault on the vaccine. It's like you are, you're detracting from the honor of the vaccines by suggesting that you might need some other treatment. They talked about a video where someone put it out. It was viewed more than 155,000 times. And they're complaining about it. Folks, again, whatever works, they complain about. So make sure you do it. 1% betadine. You get you get a big bottle of distilled water, you know, those big like jugs of water. Uh, distilled water, very cheap. Saline's gonna be more expensive and come in small things, but get that big jug of distilled water. Put in nine parts, a ratio of nine parts, um, Distilled water, one part betadine. So you're taking the existing 10% solution, which just double check, but I think almost universally you go to a drugstore, it's 10% betadine. That's you don't want to put that up your nose. I mean, I don't think it's gonna harm you that much, but you don't want to do that. You want to get it down to one percent. The experts recommend one percent. Some I've seen recommend even less, 0.5, but one percent's fine. Can nine nine to one ratio and put it in a spritz bottle, a spray bottle. And, you know, before you go to sleep, do it preemptively. And then certainly if you feel yourself getting symptoms, you want to get down that viral load. Viral load is everything that's going to determine your outcome here. And by the way, you know, if you get on a plane, you go travel, you might want to use it, especially when you come visit me on October 31st. <clears throat> that's our next front tri- front site trip with constitutioncoach.com. If you go to constitutioncoach.com, you could see um, – the information and the dates of our next training. Make sure you reserve it today. Um, I will be at the October 31st training, but there's a couple in November and December as well. The weather will be beautiful in the Nevada desert. We do gun training, handgun training during the day, constitution training, courtesy of Rick Green at night. It is beautiful, beautiful atmosphere. Um, The training is amazing. You learn how to clear malfunctions, how to take headshots, draw from the holster, and we have just a lot of fun. Enjoy each other's company. Make sure to come out there and bring your prophylaxis with you on the plane as well in case you develop the virus because it is spreading like wild. But again, go to constitutioncoach.com to find out more information. Now, folks, our next guest is someone who we originally had on, gosh, it's like 14, 15 months ago. Now, back then, we never would have thought that at this time we'd be discussing COVID at all, much less being worse than ever, despite you know the overwhelming majority of adults being vaccinated. And despite everything we've been doing with lockdowns and masks and you name it, yet here we are today. Who am I referring to? A very unique individual. Now, by now you expect me to always have a doctor on <laughs> because that's what we've been doing. Well, I am going to have one on but a doctor who's also running for governor. Most important job, this is the Super Bowl of medicine now, 
how to treat or not treat properly a pandemic, but also governor. That is really the most important position where we lay right now. The federal government is a dumpster fire. Um, it's done. We need states to push back. We're not seeing enough Republicans do it. Do that. Our next guest, Dr. Scott Jensen, some of you might remember him from last year. He was one of the first doctors speaking out about censorship, about just the insanity of what we were doing, weren't doing, rather than doing early prophylactic treatment. We were just doing a bunch of silly non-pharmaceutical intervention measures that didn't work. Um, he also talked about the way we're counting COVID deaths. He has been brought before medical boards multiple times. We're gonna we're gonna hear more about that. He's a family physician in Minnesota, and he was named uh, you know physician of the year, family physician of the year, a uh, number of years ago, about five years ago. Uh, and guess what? Now suddenly he's a bad person because well he's speaking out against the system. He's also a sitting state senator. And he is also running for governor. Lots of interesting things to discuss. Dr. Scott Jensen, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you, Daniel, for having me. I appreciate it very much. But I would want to point out that I am not a sitting senator right now. My term finished in January this year. So I have, I've been out of the Senate for nine months. <laughs> that just shows how I've, I'm so stuck on last year, the last time we spoke. Um, it's been a while, so it is good to finally have you back in the flesh. And rather than me doing a personal call with you, I'm just going to air it out in front of my listeners because I have so many things I want to ask you uh, to catch up on, uh, so many new developments since the last time we spoke. But I want to start off with, I want to tie everything back to your plan as governor, obviously, but also as a doctor. Um, you know, you get pneumonia, you get bronchitis, you get any ailment that is very treatable at first, but if you let it go, you know, it could cause you problems. Every doctor understands, you know, it's multi-drug therapy, you, you got to get it early, you know, if someone has pneumonia, you get them a nebulizer, you put steroids in it. Um, even before we get to newer things that we've been talking about, like hydroxychloroquine or, or ivermectin, yet now... 99% of doctors in this country, despite 18 months of so much academic literature on how to treat this, refuse to treat this, and we're seeing that governments and medical boards are threatening doctors that try to treat this in any which way. Pharmacists aren't prescribing. If you are government, go governor right now, what are the most important things that you would do to save people's lives from the pandemic? I would provide a measure of health freedom. I think we need a health freedom amendment. This has been discussed previously. Benjamin Rush discussed it more than 200 years ago. Dwight Eisenhower in 1961 mentioned that there may come a day where our public policy is held captive to a technological and scientific elite. And I think we're living that out today. I think we have got to let doctors and patients have the conversations they've always had to decide what types of therapies they will utilize. All you need to do is go back to 1976 and look at the Legionnaires' outbreak of pneumonia and see that our best efforts weren't working and people were dying of this, up to then, previously not diagnosed pneumonia caused by Legionnaires' pneumophila. And it wasn't as if we could turn to Tony Fauci or to some elected official and say, what should we do? We kept trying. We kept talking with our patients, interfacing with our patients, and some doctors started to use an old-fashioned antibiotic called erythromycin, 
and it made all the difference. And all of a sudden, we were able to stop the deaths. That's what we should have been doing here with COVID. We should have been able to sort out what was working and what wasn't. We've been basically browbeaten as a profession, and too many of my colleagues have been willing to accept it. And so we've got, we've got bureaucrats and unelected people and ivory tower scientists telling us what we can and cannot do, and they're not in the trenches. They're not seeing the weeping patients, the frightened people, the people who just want to have the right to try something that could be helpful. This idea, Daniel, of giving patients a binary choice when they get COVID, either get better on your own or wait till you get so damn bad you got to go in the hospital. <laughs> what kind of lunacy is that? So obviously the lunacy it is, from what I hear from most patients, a lot of doctors, some are lunatics. They literally know less about COVID than me as a layman uh, does at this point, thanks to great people like Ryan Cole and Peter McCullough and Pierre Corey and all the great doctors we've had on the show. But there are some that I think, you know, kind of know this is problematic, but they're like, I'm telling you, if I prescribe ivermectin, if I do this, they'll have my head. So you've personally butted heads with medical boards. Could you describe some of your, to the extent you can, some of your ongoing experiences being brought before boards and what doctors should do to navigate that? Well, it is frightening. No doctor wants to be brought before their medical board. I never had this happen to me prior to COVID. And right now I'm in the midst of the fourth time. So several issues emerged. One, it's unfortunate that people can do this and do it anonymously. I have been led to believe by conversations that I've had with the medical board that in none of the situations whereby my license has been investigated, has it been investigated over any actual health care I provided anybody. It's always been someone who didn't like my politics. There have been people on social media that have come out and said, I submitted a complaint against them and I'm proud of it. It doesn't take much to submit a complaint. All you have to do is go online, fill out a section with three or four sentences. You don't have to do any due diligence. You don't have to submit any specifics. It's crazy. But then, yeah, I think we need to be mindful and respectful of the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice because they have a mission to accomplish and they don't like seeing their board weaponized as a tool to attack someone based on their politics, but they still have a job to do. So they're trying to do that. And I appreciate that. I think that in Minnesota and in many states, our board of medical practice probably needs to be revised in terms of the operational details. I think boards need to be able to dismiss allegations readily if they say this has nothing to do with the medical care or the quality of services this physician is providing. Because right now, my understanding is the Minnesota Board of Medical Practice feels pretty much obligated to investigate every complaint that comes down the pike. So I understand that. But from my perspective, I think people are getting what they want when they came after me. They wanted to hurt me. And I would tell them, congratulations. Yeah, you did hurt me. You didn't stop me. You didn't shut me up. But it does hurt. So I hope that makes you feel better. 
I mean, that that's just so sad when doctors now have to feel the, they're on the hook for treating rather than not treating. You know, that that's where they should be brought in front of a board. I mean, it's like, uh, to me, I cannot relate to a doctor seeing someone call up and say, my sats are dropping into the low 90s. And, you know, it's treatable then, but you let that go, it's going to get very dangerous very soon. They won't even give them prednisone and a, and a nebulizer, which you would always do, even if you, <clears throat> again, even putting... You know, some of the newer discoveries of the last 18 months, like ivermectin, uh, on a shelf. Um, so, again, I'm going to ask you for some very specifics. If you are governor right now, if you are governor right now, what are some of the things I want to – we certainly understand the things you wouldn't do, you know, with the control and everything. But what are some things that you feel you could do to facilitate a treatment regime rather than a regime of control? I'd probably do uh, several things. Uh, first off, uh, I would work hard to get a health freedom amendment passed, and within it, there would be a vaccine bill of rights that would always allow people to have a conscientious or religious exemption. That'd be one. Two is I would go to the pharmacy board and advise them that we're in the middle of a pandemic. And if pharmacists think that they can willy-nilly, because frankly, pharmacists have done a great job, and they're getting beat up too. And pharmacists generally have been a pivotal part of a patient's team. But if pharmacists think that they can willy-nilly make a decision as to whether or not to dispense the medication that a physician has prescribed, that there has to be a reason. Because right now, pharmacists have been advised by their pharmacy boards that they cannot, they cannot prescribe or, excuse me, dispense the ivermectin. This is wrong. So I would protect the pharmacist by saying, you can prescribe, you can dispense what physicians are prescribing. But if you choose not to, because they have that right, you need to provide a reason. It can't simply be, I don't believe in ivermectin, because ivermectin is not a religion. Ivermectin is a medication. <laughs> pharmacy familiar with it. And the bottom line is 30 to 40% of physician prescribing is off-label. Yes. So I don't think go down that slippery slope where every time a physician writes a prescription, the pharmacist makes a decision as to whether or not they think it's an appropriate prescription. Then at that point in time, you may as well have the patient take their pants down, get undressed, and have an examination right there at the counter of the pharmacy. That's what the physician does. We take care of the examination, the history, make the medical decisions, and we work with the pharmacist to help the patients. But right now, we're getting it fast backwards. Because what I find is it's unbelievable. Like you said, a large percentage of prescriptions and, and for certain things like wound care, I mean, I know is very much lends itself to uh, you know prescribing off-label. No one ever has a problem. And there's one thing if the government had a nice, large, you know, protocol PDF for treating COVID, which, you know, doctors that are competent have a lot to say on it. But they ha- it's a blank paper. It's literally a blank paper. There's absolutely nothing approved. I've had doctors tell me they've had azithromycin uh, prescriptions downed. If they, if they sense that you're doing it for um, COVID, and it's unbelievable because a lot of people are developing bacterial pneumonia, and that's something that's easy to head off with this. So, you know, this is something I'm just, I'm just going to give it to you straight, Dr. Jensen. I am not finding Republicans being materially different than the Democrats on this issue. If you look, if you have a fit, you know, kind of a 30,000 foot view, aside from the Florida governor and a couple others here and there, 
fundamentally, they're echoing the same talking point. So if you, everyone was appalled when they heard, certainly on the right, when they heard the president say um, that the vaccine is working so well that it's not working, so therefore you you have to get it, because if you don't get it, you're harming the people that got it, but you still have to get it. And everyone was like, oh, the heck? I've never heard something so absurd. And I was like, dude, listen to every one of your Republican governors. They're all saying that. Now, they're not directly mandating it, but they all said it. They all said the mask works. They all said the lockdowns initially worked. They all are pushing the same things, and none of them are talking about early treatment. So none of them are talking about the things that work. How are you going to change that culture among Republicans? I'm not seeing candidates even run on this. I think we have to protect physicians. As I mentioned, we have to protect pharmacists and make the expectations clear. I think we have to have a health freedom amendment. I believe that we have to, if you will, we have to ban mandated vaccines. We've never done that before with a respiratory virus. I mean, we've encouraged, we've done education. You can do education and persuasion, but we cannot do this. This is unconstitutional from my perspective. And I think that we have to look at what does the science show? The science reveals that lockdowns do not work. The science shows that there's essentially minuscule transmission from students to teachers. So get the kids back in the classroom and don't make four-year-olds or eight-year-olds wear masks. We, we've, we literally have to go in places that we wouldn't have gone before because we've gone so overboard. And I think physicians are frightened. I think governors have been hesitant. And, and that's why I pushed back hard. I think that we've actually taken this powerfully important principle of informed consent, and we've literally sacrificed it at the altar of fear. Informed consent implies that there will be adequate information for a patient to comfortably make a decision, and the consent has to be freely given, not bullied, extracted, extorted. Uh and this is what we're seeing happen, both in state and federal government. So I'm saying in Minnesota, let's be a health freedom sanctuary state so that when the federal government chooses with President Biden to overstep its bounds, we're saying not in our state, because we know that the way our Constitution is written is the powers to the federal government are expressly written. And if they aren't expressly written, they don't exist. And it belongs to the state. But we're seeing the federal government willingly overstep its bounds. And this is a time where we have to peacefully and nonviolently be noncompliant. It's that simple. And, you know, you didn't hear the introduction, but, you know, we talked about today being Constitution Day. And too many people that call themselves conservatives like talking about it like it's an artifact. But then when the government steps over the line incontrovertibly, right, violates your bodily integrity. By the way, even when the math doesn't add up anymore, because now even according to their narrative, you still get it, you still spread it. And even the uh, protection from serious illness, which doesn't affect another person, it's a personal choice, that is waning as well. We're seeing that everywhere. Um, and yet they're mandating it. They're mandating it when it's not working anymore, when so many of these people that are vaccinated are in the same boat as the unvaccinated. They get it. They get sick. They need treatment and they can't get it. Uh, even the monoclonals, the president is now making scarce and rationing it. And we have nowhere to turn. So, you know, but and, and the governor's put out this big thing. I'll see you in court. I'll do this. But 
it, you know, if, if a if a president declares he's suspending civil liberties, there's a reason why our founders and and Madison Hamilton spoke about this in Federalist Papers all the time. There's a reason why they have a tiered system, a layered system. It's that states would just say, um, no, the, 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 you can't do that. You can't violate uh, the Constitution. I am not really seeing enough governors do that. Um, I, I, I think they're hanging on the courts. The courts have already upheld these mandates. Um, you know, Maybe they'll say, well, a federal is different than a state one. I mean, split those hairs there. Could be. But certainly we can't count on that alone. So again, what other things would you do and would you support a concept of a patient bill of rights? I think that's what a health freedom amendment is, mm. is a patient rights. Benjamin Rush mentioned it 250 years ago. Um, Dwight Eisenhower referred to it in 1961. I think we need a health freedom amendment. And that is essentially a patient bill of rights. And within it, we would have to address a vaccine bill of rights because People need to have the ability to say no based on their convictions. That's that's the principle that our country was founded on. So before we go on, I just do want to have a word from our sponsor here, folks. You know, speaking of rights uh, um, and and look, you know, we we need all rights defended, but at least our religious liberty rights, uh, which tie in very much to this uh, mandatory vaccine debate, are being defended by our friends at ADEF, Alliance Defending Freedom. They've been standing for religious liberty, the sanctity of life, freedom of speech, marriage, parental rights, America's highest courts for years. I want you guys to check out adflegal.org slash CR, as in conservative review, and get your copy of their ebook titled Generational Wins. Um, it's important to see the vitality of their work because, folks, unlike the ACLU, they don't have deep pockets, but they try to represent everyone um, all pro bono, and they rely on the generosity of people like you. So again, go to adflegal.org slash CR, adflegal.org slash CR. So again, we're talking with Dr. Scott Jensen, um, who is a family physician, as well as a former state senator running for governor, really one of the only candidates I've seen from day one take this issue and make it front and center. Um, I wanted to get your comment on that, Dr. Jensen, because one of the things that bothers me is I look at a lot of these Republicans running for governor and or, or anything, Congress, whatever, and it sounds like it's 2018, 2012, 1996. It's like, I'm pro-life, I'm pro-gun. And like, okay, but like, dude, that ain't the issue of our time. I mean, COVID, both the virus... You know, we can talk about the source of it and why it seems to be worse than ever and enhanced and the vaccine and whatever. But both the virus is killing a ton of people because we're not dealing with it properly. What we should be doing, we're, they're, they're banning. Um, the fascism, the control, it affects every facet of our life. Yet these Republicans run for office and it's almost like this issue doesn't exist. Yeah, I think that you spot, you're spot on. I, uh, one of the things that's made our our campaign over the first six months, because it's been six months since we announced is that, yes, I am pro-life and I am strong Second Amendment supporter. But here's the deal. It's not the issue of the time. Nope. And I think the reason people are so excited about our campaign, I mean, we just yesterday, last night, went over a million dollars raised, which has never been done in the off year by a Republican candidate. And we have 80,000 people that have joined our email team. We've got 
9,000 unique donors that have been donating money. People are absolutely energized and they're electrified. And we're getting donations and support from lots and lots of independents, from moderate-leaning Democrats, and certainly the entire spectrum of the Republican Party. And I think the reason is because I am telling them, listen, I have stood in the trenches. I have been in the breach. I have been the most investigated doctor in Minnesota and arguably one of the most investigated doctors in the nation. And I have not flinched because I am absolutely committed to our Constitution as our, if you will, symbolic Bible as to how we govern ourselves. And we cannot let this thing go like this. We have vaccines that are not doing what we were told they would do, being forced on people when they have far better immunity because they've recovered from the natural virus. We have so many things that are not scientific. We have PCR tests being cycle threshold at 40 to 45, knowing it's going to give us false positives. We have death certificates being massaged so that we dramatize and frighten the population. We have Mm. put financial incentives into place for hospitals to discharge patients with a COVID diagnosis because they'll get paid more. We have done things over and over again to bastardize the data that we look at every day, which then is used to justify public policies, which are draconian in nature and not effective. So I'm trying to tell people, listen, we are in the transformational event of a lifetime. We cannot let this continue to happen. So please, Pay attention. Your rights are being taken away. Good medicines are being denied you. And instead, you're being told, take remdesivir because it's the only thing we're going to give you. (laughs) And never mind that the data really does demonstrate that it may not be nearly as effective as we've been led to believe. We have got to focus. It's sort of like keep your eye on the ball because otherwise we are just Forrest Gump being stupid is as stupid does. (laughs) And that's that's what it is. These Republican legislators and governors, it's like I've been yelping for 18 months. First, the lockdown, then the mess, then, you know, and, and the vaccine. I understand it comes out. I'm, I'm as pro vaccine as anyone. I've taken all in my life. But at some point, you got to look at what's going on. Well, wait a minute. We never saw a vaccine that was developed this quickly. The corners cut so much. And then the results show when we see both on the efficacy side and and on the side effects side. Well, wait a minute. This is a very different story. I mean, why aren't the legislatures holding hearings with Ryan Cole and Peter McCullough every day and and getting the story on this? People like Pierre Corey, who, by the way, is a liberal, a dear friend of mine, um, so badly wants to save lives. And, uh, you know, he gave a riveting testimony before the Senate in uh it was last december and you know his words have gone unheeded it just doesn't make any sense and and by the way yeah i mean you mentioned remdesivir that's a huge scandal we've spent billions of dollars three thousand dollars a dose there's evidence it has um almost 10 percent higher uh uh incidence of renal failure over the baseline uh rate um so there's also side effects with that too um, there's, there's new studies out this week showing it has zero, zero efficacy, um, on, on anything. Uh, th- th- there was an arm of a WHO study investigating 857 participants, 429 assigned to remdesivir. And, uh, there was just no material difference associated with the treatment group. Um, and this is very, very concerning. Uh, you know what? 
I, I want to ask you two more questions before we wrap it up. You, because you brought up Remdesivir, what could a governor do if, you know, this is a problem in all 50 states. It's a problem in a red state, just like in a blue state. The, you know, maybe there's a fewer mandates, but in the hospitals, the story's the same. They come in there. Now you get the, you know, cannula um, oxygen, which is important. You need the oxygen. But the only treatment is remdesivir. Even the steroid is a little bit controversial. The type of steroid they give, the dosage they give, and the timing they give it, um, as opposed to some better options. But you, you literally have patients. I, I get emails all over from relatives of listeners of mine, and it's heartbreaking. If they're outpatient, I set them up with one of the frontline doctors. But inpatient, there's nothing I can do. It's like being in jail. And it's heartbreaking. They know it's not working, and they refuse to allow them to try ivermectin, to try giving them food through, um, not through the IV, but you, uh, I forget it. I'm forgetting the acronym of what that is when you feed them, um, you know, more robust food. And androgen blockers have shown to really do wonders in Brazil. All of these things, and especially for patients that are without any option, sometimes they're even advising that they, uh, take off life support, but yet they still will oppose even FDA-approved drugs. How could, as a governor, you change that around immediately? Well, I think we have to be careful here, Daniel. I think you're referring to TPN or total parental nutrition. Yeah. But um, I think that we need to let the doctors continue to do the research, be involved, work with their patients. In terms of remdesivir, it's been disappointing that it isn't more consistently providing a benefit. But I think we have to go back to what we said before. We've got to get government out of medicine. We have to let physicians and patients work together. I think physicians have fallen into a trap here. Many physicians have seemed to think that it's okay to have government telling us what to do. And I say, no, it's not. I don't care if physicians agree with me or disagree with me in terms of how to care for patients. I think physicians have to be unleashed from government. We're having literally this scientific elite take over our profession. And many of these people don't have an MD. Many of them may be more statistical manipulators. They may spend their time as, a, as an analyst for data. They may be a statistician. They might be in the world of epidemiology, epidemiology where what they're doing is just adjusting and massaging numbers. Yep. Physicians and patients have to be able to work together. We need to be able to offer early treatment multiple drugs because that does typically be the protocol if you will for viral things if you whether you're looking at hiv or many other viral drugs viral problems even even shingles we generally are looking at both antiviral agents and oftentimes steroids but the idea that we're going to let government step in and take over our lives the government is not allowed to do that it violates our constitutional rights so i'm not going to that the government should step in on remdesivir, I think what should happen is doctors and patients should be digesting what's happening and saying, gee, this drug isn't doing as much as we thought it should. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have to look at some other things too. 
That's what I would think. Sure. No, I mean, the, the only reason why I ask is because we're not starting with a clean slate. The government stepped into this as much as you could possibly step into it. The government is funding the entire pandemic response. So, I mean, any state Medicaid funding is literally spending 3000 a pop on a drug that absolutely doesn't work. It cannot work at that stage. If it were to work, it would actually have to be outpatient earlier um, as an antiviral. It certainly does not work as an anti-inflammatory with the cytokine storm. And that's what concerns me a little bit with that and a lot of what they're doing, again, with the vaccines as well. You know, state governors and legislators have to deal with this because the state is funding it, or at least through the federal funding, they're funding the wrong things and not funding the right things. So this is certainly something we want to look at. Final question is, okay, just putting on your physician hat for a moment. You happen to be running for governor, but... You know, people really don't know how to get a balanced view on the vaccine. Um, I badly want it to work. Um, you know, I, I do happen to think that this virus has gotten worse, um, possibly because of the vaccines. But it certainly it was likely synthetically created. Um, it binds to the ACE2 receptor for dear life. It's unbelievable what it does. I badly want to we, we want a way to get get rid of it. No, no problems. But the problem people are having is. That, the, I mean, the, it's not working anymore, especially if you got it earlier. And the degree of side effects are being covered up to the point where you can't make a proper risk-benefit analysis. Like, I don't know how to tell someone at what age or health status it's worth it. So what are your general guiding principles just scientifically based on what you're seeing now with the vaccine? Well, <clears throat> with the vaccine, my first guiding principle it has to be a personal decision. And I give the same advice to influenza vaccines. I say this, you have to be able to have a religious and conscientious exemption if that's where you're at. Second thing is, if you're over 70 and you have multiple underlying medical conditions with underlying and also using multiple medications, I tell patients, taking the vaccine, you probably have something like a one in 25,000 chance, maybe a little less, but somewhere around that of dying from the vaccine. If you get COVID, you may have a one in 20 chance, a 5% chance of dying. So to me, statistically, it would make sense to get the vaccine. And I tell them that. Now, if they're not 70, if they're, if they're 30, if they're under 30, their risk of dying of the COVID is negligible. So what is it, 99.99 or 97 people uh, re- recover. <clears throat> so most people, I'd say, it's your choice. And are there concerns about the vaccine safety? Yes, if you look at the various data bank, there's lots of concerns because there's more complications, problems, and deaths associated with COVID-19, according to VAERS, than there has been for all the vaccines combined for the last 30 years. So I think we can acknowledge that there's concerns. And I just let people make their own decision. But I, I've also made it very clear that the hassle factor is a huge issue because we are facing this situation where we have a virtual de facto mandate because if you don't get vaccinated, even if you've recovered from the wild virus yourself and have antibodies, you're not allowed to do this, that, or the other thing. So that's pretty much what I tell patients. If you're over 70, 90% of my patients over 70 with multiple underlying conditions of risk and are vulnerable have been vaccinated. Now, most of them have gotten vaccinated on their own without ever having a conversation with me, which is fine. But for those that have asked to have a conversation, we have the conversation and I tell them the statistics. And statistically, they're at far less risk of dying 
if they just go ahead and take the vaccine. Sure, but the, the so the problem we have now is that there's really three factors when you evaluate the vaccine. There's the safety of it, there's the efficacy of it, and then there's what else is out there. So what, what I'm finding yep. tragic is that you now have increasingly seniors, particularly because they got it earlier, so it's waning quick, quickly, and they're getting very sick from the virus despite having gotten it. Some got very sick from the vaccine and now are getting very sick from COVID. And anyway, you need treatment. So my question is, if all the doctors in the country were like the frontline doctors, what would the virus look like? What would the pandemic, uh, the arc of the pandemic look like? See, that's part of the informed consent because, you know, people like Brian Tyson and, um, you know, Dr. Fareed, the, the partners with him, you know, they'll tell you that anyone who's come to them early, it doesn't matter their health status, their age. They do well with it. Um, you know, we could talk about the efficacy of Pfizer and how low it is now and it's waning. The efficacy of Dr. Tyson is is as close to 100% as you can get. <laughs> so that's that's part of the issue too, that on the one hand, like I would say, yeah, for sure, if you're above a certain age, especially with this, this viral load now that we're seeing, yeah, man, this thing could really kill you. Um, get the vaccine, but on the other hand, it's like, well, I don't know. What if they had access to early treatment, and 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 you know, what if they did prophylaxis? And that's what's so hard to put this all together. Um, and I would hope, as governor, you would be able to really put in people that would actually investigate this. Because again, my concern is, I agree with your kind of libertarian streak of hands off, but the reality is, the hands are already on. I mean, the government, you know, whatever state you're a part of is going to spend billions of dollars on COVID. That is a fact. They're just going to spend it on that. So it's a matter of what are you spending it on? What are you marketing? What are you, even if you don't force it, but what you're making available um, shouldn't have been been this way in the first place. Any closing thoughts just to wrap this up? There'll be several legacy points when we're done with COVID at some point in time in the future. Certainly one of them will have been the hidden agendas and the absolute confounding sacrifice of science to the altar of political pandering and political science. And that's going to be something we have to somehow try to get some measure of accountability down the road on. But we're also going to have a legacy of what we did to the children, what we did to our mental health, what we did to our fragile vulnerable seniors who had to die alone in nursing homes. There are so many things we did wrong. But one of the things that I think will emerge is what you've mentioned, Daniel, and that is we gave patients a binary choice, get better or get worse. And when you get bad enough to be in the hospital, a lot of the options that you'd like to have won't be available. You won't be able to do things that your gut tells you absolutely could help. You will have interventions foisted on you that from the medical literature might not make the most sense. And this will be a legacy that we will remember forever. And it's sobering and maddening. Well, thankfully we have someone who's willing to run on this issue in particular. You could follow Dr. Jensen at Dr. Scott Jensen, just very simple. Jensen is J-E-N-S-E-N on Twitter. Um, where could people find out more about your campaign? The best thing to do, Daniel, and thank you for asking, is to go to drscottjensen.com. That's our website, drscottjensen.com. Learn more about us. Learn more about us. Reach out to us. Uh, 
contributions, donations, and becoming a delegate for us matters. And I sure appreciate being on. Thank you, Daniel. Perfect. Thank you. And keep us updated. Good luck and God bless.